0: Well, good evening friends. It is so brilliant to be with you. I'm here in Aberdeen, the city of dreams, and you are somewhere else. You're, you're in the UK or Ireland or anywhere else in the world. It's particularly cold and dark here in the northeast corner of Scotland. I wonder what it's like where you are. It is such a privilege to be able to open the scriptures with our vineyard family at a moment like this. I'm just gonna put my cards on the table right now and say that I believe with all my heart that in this moment we are experiencing the greatest opportunity for the gospel that we have ever known in our lifetimes. Is the enemy at work? Of course he is, of course he is. In all of the disease and the death and the loneliness and the isolation and the pressure and the pain, of course the enemy is at work but is the God of heaven at work? Is the kingdom of God breaking in, in our midst, all over the place? We have to believe it. You know, history has already recorded that over Christmas this year, it was a great time to be selling pink Prosecco. Lidl apparently sold more than six million glasses of pink Prosecco over Christmas. History has already recorded that it's a great time to be in the takeaway delivery business. Just Eat sales have risen by 58% in the last quarter. But I believe with all my heart that history will record that this was a great moment to be the church. You know, we have always loved our communities, but over the course of this pandemic, we've had the opportunity to demonstrate that we love our communities. And by uh, food banks and free schools, school uniform and befriending services and the Alpha Course, we have shown people that we love them in the most beautiful way, and that love comes from the love of God. Um, uh, while the foundations of our society have been so deeply shaken and continue to to be so, it seems to me absolutely inconceivable that God wouldn't take an opportunity like this. You know, when, when, when everything is being shaken, the tenets of our culture and our society are being challenged to an enormous degree. All of the authority figures that we have held to be um, powerful in our world are being deeply challenged. Surely, God would take an opportunity like that to reach into the hearts of men and women, the people who we love, and to make himself known. Surely he would do that. And so it seems to me our greatest challenge in this moment is to try to perceive what it is that God is doing and then to partner with him to participate in the purposes of God in this season and so the question becomes how how do we do that like it's an amazing opportunity it's an incredible thought but what does it actually look like for us to step into this moment and to try to discern what God's doing and then to uh, step into all the opportunities that it provides I want to answer that question by looking together at a section of scripture in John chapter four, in which Jesus is training his disciples. It's quite early on in their training, and so they definitely don't get everything right. But he's trying to train them to perceive where the kingdom is breaking in and how the kingdom is breaking in. It's John's account of the meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And we're going to join Jesus halfway through his encounter with this woman. As you may know, he shouldn't have been there because Jews, least of all rabbis, uh, didn't go into Samaria. There'd been centuries of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. He shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have been there. It was far too hot in the middle of the day. No one in their right mind goes collecting water in the middle of the day. And probably the reason why she was collecting water at that time is because she knew that if she went at that time, she'd be alone. And she was an outcast. She'd had this string of failed relationships. She was on her uh, sixth long-term relationship. And and she knew that if she went at that point, she would be undisturbed. Uh, And so he shouldn't have been there, she shouldn't have been there, and they should not have been talking to one another, Uh, Jewish men of that time that they didn't even talk to their own wives in public, let alone some woman that they'd never met before. But Jesus has this amazing conversation with her uh, about living water that would be the answer to all of the greatest thirst and longing that she had known throughout her life. And then he has what seems to be a word of knowledge about this string of failed relationships, something he, he, he just couldn't have known by any other way other than by prophetic revelation. And then here come the disciples who have missed the entire thing because they stopped at the drive-through on the way there. And so here we have John chapter four, verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were so surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying goes, one um, sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the savior of the world. That's God's word to us and everything else is commentary. Uh, Just over a year ago, Taryn and I had the opportunity to listen to some teaching by Professor David Ford. David Ford had been for a long time the Regis Professor of Divinity of Theology at Cambridge University. Regis means uh, he had been personally appointed by the Queen and he, he by this time had been studying John's gospel almost exclusively uh, and y- 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 for a long time, for 18 years. And you might think that someone who's been studying the same pages of scripture for 18 years would by this point be tired of them and be ready to move on to something else, but nothing could be further from the truth. It was so thrilling to hear this man uh, who'd been intimately engaging with this text for so long, just um, uh, drawing out the richness and the depth that he'd discovered whilst he was there. And so so, we were all desperate to know what the big revelation was. What had he discovered uh, as he'd been studying these pages for 18 years? What was the big revelation? Uh, And his his revelation was completely stunning. He said this, I think John wants us to know that the journey of discipleship, of, of walking with Jesus, of pilgrimage with Jesus throughout the course of our lives is about the re-education of our desires. That's the beautiful work that Jesus does by his spirit, right at the core of who we are. That over the course of our lives, as we walk more closely with him, we come to want different things. We come to long for different things, hope for different things. Different things matter to us the more closely we walk with him. And uh, uh, he he kind of backed up everything that I've just said by pointing out that the very first question that Jesus asks in John's gospel is he 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 encounters two of John the Baptist's disciples, and as they're coming towards him, he says this: "What is it that you want? What uh, other translations say: What are you seeking?" And then he took us all the way through John's Gospel, and then just towards the end of the Gospel when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers are coming towards him to arrest him, he says twice the same question, who is it that you want? Who are you seeking? And then there's that beautiful encounter between Mary Magdalene and Jesus uh, 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 post the resurrection. Uh, And as they're uh, just encountering one another afresh in this new moment, again, he says to her, whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? It's a powerful thing, this question of desire. Again and again, in between the start of John's gospel and the end of John's gospel, uh, not least in our passage in John chapter four, is the question of desire. What does Jesus desire? What does the Father desire? What do the, 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 the disciples desire? And what does this woman desire? John wants us to know that it's in this place of our deepest longing that Jesus wants to do his most profound work. I vividly remember the first day that my eldest son, uh, I was responsible for him for the whole day. You know, I, I, I was like 25. I'd never held a baby before until I held my own son. I was absolutely clueless. But for reasons that are lost in the mist of time, my wife, Taryn, had gone out for the day. I think she'd maybe gone to get a haircut or gone to the shops or something like that. And I was like, don't worry, darling, I've got this. And so um, no sooner had the front door closed behind her than my baby son, his little lips started to quiver and then he just began to wail. And he just wailed and wailed and wailed. And nothing I could do would help. You know, I was like, do you want your dummy? Do you want your bottle? Uh, You know, I went through every single rattle, every single cuddly toy. I tried putting him down. I tried picking him up. I tried laying him down. I tried sitting him up and nothing would work. But I was like, I am so not phoning Taryn for about one minute and then I phoned Taryn. And I uh, said to her, listen, darling, uh, you might just be able to hear in the background that, that our son is just a wee bit anxious about something and, and you know I've tried quite a few things. I've, I've tried uh, the dummy, I've tried the bottle, I've tried every rattle and cuddly toy that we own. I've tried putting him down, I've tried picking him up, I've tried laying him down, I've tried sitting him up and nothing seems to work and the problem is I just don't know what he wants and I, I think if I'm honest I remember her laughing and then She said, no, Chuck, the problem isn't that you don't know what he wants. The problem is that he doesn't know what he wants. And isn't that so often our problem? We just don't know what we want. This, This question of desire is so critically important for us is so central to who we are, and our desires and our longings are so easily confused or so often contaminated. To uh, discover what a person wants, what they hope for, what they long for, what their ambitions are, is to discover who they truly are, not who they say they are who, or, or, or who they'd like to be. It tells us who they are. And actually, if we were to find out how someone's desires and longings and hopes were developing or changing over time, then we find out who it is that they are becoming. In in John chapter 4, the disciples' desires are so shallow and so insignificant, their eyes are down, they seem to be only concerned about when they're next going to eat and when Jesus is next going to eat and as a result of these, uh, of just having their eyes down and and having such superficial desires, the result is that they have no idea what it is that God is about to do and John is deliberately contrasting their desires with Jesus's desires who are so perfectly aligned with his father's desires. Verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And here's my point. You know, we all want God to do something remarkable and beautiful in the world. We all want uh, God to do the kind of thing that that we see happening in this passage where one conversation with one broken woman leads to a whole town coming to know the Lord. We all wanna see those kind of uh, multiplication miracles. But what if uh, something remarkable and beautiful happening in the world must first be preceded by God doing something remarkable and beautiful in our own hearts. Or as somebody quite brilliant, probably Steve Nicholson once said, before God does something through us, he first wants to do something in us. There are so many things that are out side of our control right now aren't there you know we don't get to decide when we get the vaccine we don't get to decide when the lockdown will end we don't get to even to decide when we're going to see our friends or our family again but we can decide this i'm going to invite the lord to reshape my heart in this season Uh, there are i think three desires that God wants to place into our hearts in a fresh way. The the way I think of it is is, um, a bit like uh, God wants to take treasure uh, and place it into the secret vault of our souls. And in this passage, I think there are three particular desires, and the first thing is this, I think Jesus wants to place in us, or refresh in us, a longing to be with him, a longing to be with Jesus. It's, uh, it's often a good thing I'm married to Taryn because uh, if I'm planning to say something out loud in public, I'll often run it past her first. And there are an unbelievable amount of inappropriate things that have not been said out loud and in public because I've run them past Taryn first. And I think the talk that I might have preached, uh, had I done this talk even a couple of weeks ago, if I'd have run it past her first, she would have said something like this. Yeah, Chuck, it's, um, it's a bit judgy, isn't it? It's a bit judgmental because it would have gone something like this. Here is a woman with a backstory, a string of failed relationships and broken marriages uh, for reasons lost in the passing of time. She she, she has this longing for love, this ache for for affirmation, this kind of gaping chasm at the core of her soul that she is just so desperate to fill, And she's living her life with this desperate thirst. And Jesus comes to her and he says this, he says, if you drink the water I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. And so I think my talk would have gone something like this, this poor woman, you know, she's quenching her thirst in all the wrong places. And then it would have gone to say, you know, those poor people out there They're quenching their thirst in all the wrong places and our friends and our neighbors and our work colleagues and the people we meet at the school gate, they're all quenching an eternal thirst uh, that that they've been living with for their whole lives uh, with things that are temporal and, and futile. Unlike us who have known and loved the presence of Jesus and have come to know that that in the presence of Jesus we experience hope and life and joy and love. And if I'd have preached that sermon, Taron would have just raised one eyebrow as if to say, really? So that's not what we do. You know, we're 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 not looking for love in all the wrong places. We're we're not seeking peace in things that are temporal or futile. That's just them out there, is it? She's the one who sets a beautiful example. This woman. Do you know John, having been walking with Jesus for sixty years or or thereabouts, by the time he's written this gospel, I think he seems to me to be absolutely mortified by his and his friend's uh, behavior in this moment, by the way that his own desires had been so misaligned. He and his friends were just really, really concerned about when they were next going to eat lunch. She's the one who sets this beautiful example. Did you notice what she did? She leaves her bucket at the feet of Jesus, and she goes off to go and bring all of her friends back but she leaves her bucket there as if to say, I'll be right back. And when I do, I'm just going to drink and drink and drink and drink. What if the invitation of this moment is to leave our bucket at the feet of Jesus? Before Christmas, Taryn and I had the opportunity to listen to Francis Chan teaching online. Uh, and um, Francis Chan, some of you may know, he, he planted and, and led a massive church in America. And then more recently, he's been planting networks of much smaller house churches in, in a number of different places around the world. And, and what he said was this, he said, do you know, during this pandemic, there have been uh, the voices of Christians uh, um, Saying things like, uh, oh, we hate the way the government is trying to shut down the church or or prevent us from worshipping. You know, all of the complaints about mask wearing and and social distancing and um, uh, the, the number of people you can have in church services and all these kinds of things. You know, the government is interfering and Christians have been really vocal in their complaint. He said, you don't hear many people saying, thank you, Lord, for for two weeks of quarantine. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity for two weeks alone, uninterrupted, with my Saviour. He said, you hear lots of voices of complaint. Where are the voices that sound like David? You know, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Where are the voices of people who sound like the Apostle Paul? I just want to gain Christ and be found in him. What if, you know, you don't hear many voices like that. What if we became those voices? A longing to be with Jesus is something that he wants to give us. The second thing that God wants to put into our hearts is a a hunger to obey Jesus I love, I absolutely love that moment. Uh, just towards the end of John's gospel, the apostles, the, you know, professional fishermen, they've been fishing all night and it must've been so humiliating. <laughs> They'd caught precisely nothing, just a completely empty catch. And then Jesus comes to them and he says, hey, I, I see what you're doing there. Why don't you just throw your nets on the other side of the boat? And uh, suddenly there are so many fish in these nets that they, they just can't even haul them in. I don't know about you, but every time I even think about that story, it makes my heart want to burst. Like, oh Lord, please, yes, in our day, in our time, please would we see such an abundant catch of fish that we're not even able to retain them. Please, God, would would you do something miraculous like that in our day? What if the only thing that we need the key that would make all the difference between an abundant catch of fish or or, uh, between an empty catch of fish and an abundant catch of fish? What, What if the key ingredient that would make us unimaginably fruitful is to be unimpeachably faithful to the instructions of Jesus? Actually, that seems to be the case for every multiplication miracle in John's gospel. So, for example, in John chapter 2, you have the wedding in Cana, and there's this abundance of wine, that, uh, and everything starts to kick off when? When Mary says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. That's John chapter 2. In John chapter 6, there's this abundance of bread left over after the feeding of the 5,000. And all of that, again, kicks off at exactly the moment where everyone does exactly what Jesus asked them to do. And yet here, in between John chapter and John chapter six is John chapter four. There's a whole town to be won. The kingdom is about to break in. Hundreds of people are about to be swept into the family of God. And yet John records to his shame in verse 27, no one, not even one disciple stopped to ask Jesus, what do you want? Perhaps the most significant revelation in my own personal devotions during the last year has come from something that I noticed in the book of Revelation. Now, just to reassure you, I read more than just the book of Revelation. I'm not that guy. But um, in Revelation chapter 2, there are these letters to the seven churches. And and it's essentially Jesus's words to every single one of these seven churches. and, And they're all facing pressure. Uh, and actually, they're all facing persecution, but the persecution is coming in different forms. Uh, it's not an easy time for any of them. Uh, uh, you know, there are people coming into some of the churches trying to derail them or, or take them off on a false tangent. Of uh, uh, and and so, uh, but but uh, all of these churches are being led by leaders who are trying to. It's as if they're like shepherds trying to take their flock through a minefield. It's not easy. And so Jesus says specific words to specific churches, and yet there's one thing, and to be honest, I I should have noticed this years ago, and I don't know how I didn't, but but there's one thing that Jesus says to every single one of these seven churches, and it's this, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. And my, you know, marvelous deduction (laughs) from those words is that Jesus is speaking by his spirit to every church. And what that means is that if he's speaking to every church, he's speaking to my church and he's speaking to your church. He's speaking to everyone. He's speaking to me and he's speaking to you. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the church. What if the Lord wants to lead us through this pandemic into a season of unimaginable fruitfulness and all that he required of us wasn't just listening to one more critical webinar or one more essential podcast? What if all that he required of us was obedience? What if all we need to do is way more simple than we might think? is to listen for the voice of Jesus and then to do whatever he tells us. A hunger to obey Jesus is something that Jesus wants to give us. And the last one, the third one, is a desperation for the world to encounter Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus says this, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields because they're ripe for harvest. It seems to me that these words have never been more true in our lifetimes than they are right now. The fields are ripe for harvest. Um, so many of the statistics that are coming out uh, uh, about the, the church in the Western world right now are absolutely stunning. As soon as the first lockdown happened, we, all of our churches, we, we kind of did our best to to bring our church online as quickly as possible. Uh, And and, uh, so many of us have done that over this season. Uh, uh, But what's amazing is that as we all jumped online and we started to worship Jesus online, our uh, neighbors, our work colleagues, our friends, they also jumped online and they joined us. Uh, A a survey that was done by Tearfund back in May uh, said that nearly a quarter of all the whole adult population had visited a church during the pandemic so far. And actually, I mean, that's a stunning thing. If you stop to think about it, you know, if that had happened at this time last year before the pandemic had hit, if a quarter of your city had arrived at church uh, uh, over the course of a few weeks you would have called that revival we all would have called that revival we would have celebrated a quarter of the population and what's even more stunning is that comrades who did that survey they went back and they asked the question again in July and also in August and the number was growing each time the number went from 24% to 26% to 29% of the population was visiting a church at least once a month online it's astonishing of churches are reporting a marked interest in the gospel from people who don't know Jesus. Half of all of our young adults are praying, half. And, and what's amazing about that is that that number is also growing. When they asked the question in July, it was 45%. When they asked it again a month later, it was 55%. And we don't know what that number is. Now, many churches are reporting that their Alpha courses are the biggest Alpha courses they've ever seen. Loads of churches are saying that they're seeing more people come to know Jesus in this season than they've ever known before. Suddenly, from nowhere, and it is from nowhere, There's a fresh interest in the gospel, a fresh openness to the good news of Jesus like we've not known before. Over the century, the last century or so, the perception of the church in wider society has shifted. You know, if you were to ask people about 100 years ago, is it generally a helpful thing to have a church in every community? They would say, of course it is. And, and, and then over the course of time, that's been eroded. And so then it was, well, it's probably harmless to have a church, a local church in every community. But then over the course of time, hasn't it become more like, do you know, actually, maybe it's harmful to have a church in every community. Maybe there isn't a place for the church in global society anymore. But in the space of a few days, as the lockdown began, and nearly everything else stopped. Do you know, almost the only thing left standing was the local church, feeding the hungry, supporting people isolated and lonely in their homes, speaking a message of hope and peace into the swirl of chaos and fear and panic. And doesn't it feel like the perception of the church has shifted again, like there's a fresh favor on the church like we've not known before? And doesn't it feel like even in this last lockdown, which none of us wanted and, and, and probably few of us, even a few months ago, uh, had any idea it was coming, but doesn't it feel like this in this last lockdown, the whole of our society is being deeply shaken and that in a sense the whole world is being brought again to its knees? You see, if we can just lift our eyes, open our eyes, even just for a moment, isn't it just conceivable that God is redeeming this moment? That he's in some way pressed the reset button for the world, that something heavenly is afoot. Friends, I feel compelled to invite you, to encourage you, to exhort you with everything that I have to open your eyes, to look at the fields because the fields are ripe for harvest. Your colleagues, your friends, your neighbors, your family, they've never been more interested in the person and work of Jesus Christ than they are right now. But here's the thing, like I'm not a farmer, Uh, I I live near a farm, but I know almost nothing about farming. And so whenever I've read this passage before and I've seen about, you know, don't you say that it's four more months until the harvest? I've always thought, no, uh, I don't say that. Um, uh, And so I don't think I've ever really understood before the the urgency in Jesus's words. I think I've always read it a bit like, oh, if you were to pop outside right now, you would discover that the fields are... um, uh, there's a harvest out there and it's lovely. You could go out there, you could step into the fields, you could t- take a selfie of yourself or you could, you know, it's like a lovely time for a walk this time of year and, and you, could, you, you could see that there's, it's like, oh, there's a lovely thing having a harvest out there. And of course, what I hadn't realized, but now I've realized that it, it's obvious, is that, that a ripe field for a farmer is an emergency. It, it, it's an emergency that demands immediate activity. What he's really saying, I think, might be more like this. You know, you've got this saying, oh, the harvest is like four months away. I've got this saying, wake up, smell the coffee. This is urgent. We've all got to get out there. The harvest is ready. And so John is contrasting the disciples who are kind of footering around with Jesus's obsessive focus with reaching people. They're tired, they're hungry, they stop for lunch on the way, Then they return and they're kind of confused because they can see Jesus breaking some social norms and then they're really concerned about his lunch. Like, have you had lunch yet? You should have some lunch. Where did he get his lunch from? Did somebody buy him a lunch on the way? Did he stop at the supermarket on the way? Like, Where did he get his lunch from? They're just footering around. And here is Jesus breaking every barrier, breaking every wall. He's saying, I don't care if she lives in Samaria. I don't care if she's a Samaritan. I don't care if she's a woman. I don't care if she's lived a a life that means that she's now broken and, and she's got this string of failed relationships. I don't care. I have to reach her right now. And then through her, I have to reach all the people that she knows. There is a harvest in the world right now, that must be gathered in right now. The whole world has been stirred, the foundations of our society have been shaken, and whilst the enemy has been seeking to steal and kill and destroy, God has been preparing hearts and drawing them towards himself. And it turns out that of all the people who have ever lived and all the people who will ever live, God chose us. This is our moment. This is our day. This is our season. This is our harvest. The opportunity of a lifetime is only available for the lifetime of the opportunity. I think that's a quote from John Wright. Let's not miss our moment. Actually, we don't know how long this window will last for. So let's not look back on this moment and think, oh, what if we had dug deep into God, put our roots down deep, uh, received, a feeling afresh of the Holy Spirit, and then what if we'd just gone the extra mile? What if we'd just made that extra invitation? What if we just put our heart on our sleeves in a fresh way or taken our heart into our mouths or whatever the phrase is? What if we'd just gone for it for just an extra few months? What could have happened? Do you know, this isn't in my notes, but but I'm just so conscious that the danger is that this moment of enormous opportunity is in danger of colliding with a moment where we're all exhausted. And of course that's true. So what if we were to receive afresh the urgency that is in the heart of God for lost people to become found people? Do you know, I just long for the heart of God and what if, what if God in this season, the, the invitation, the opportunity of this season is that, that he would redirect, re-educate our desires so that we become more like Jesus in the way that we live. John and Debbie, it's over to you.